Yeah, it's because Bugcrowd doesn't know that I can hack hardware. I need to hit them up and be like, hey, Same by deal. the way. Yeah, me submits one bug yeah. a year on Bugcrowd. And it's like, like, who is hardware this guy? Hardware god, no. Yo, we're rolling. Yo, yo, how's it going? Pretty good, dude. This uh, this past couple of weeks has been kind of crazy, but we're getting ready to kick off a live hacking event again, so it's not going to slow down, I don't think. Oh, dude, nonstop. It's not, it's like one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, at least you got a you got a week off last week from the pod. <laughs> yes, a little bit, barely. <laughs> yeah, you had crazy stuff going on though, so that's that's how yes. it rolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um. Yeah, let's check out the news stuff for the day. Um, first first up on the docket was Naham Khan, uh, who are sponsoring this episode. So thank you, Naham Khan. Um, just wanted to give them a shout out and say I'm going to be speaking there on the Saturday um, Saturday slot at 12.20. And I'm going to be giving a presentation on uh, PCI DSS, uh, which is essentially payment card stuff, um, and how pretty much every single website that we've seen is vulnerable to some sort of trickery in this area due to the way that the uh, DSS structures, uh, recommended structure is. So there's going to be some really, really awesome content in that that will drop. So definitely don't miss that on uh, on Saturday at 12 p.m. PST. Yeah, dude, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I know that Naham always has amazing people on for his his, yeah. con, his con and just for his show in general and all the, all the content that he makes but uh yeah it's super awesome i'm i'm yeah. super stoked to see what you talk about there I, I think i think the con in particular i think is one of the one of the best structured ones for bug bounty hunters because you know ben just has such a good network in the bug bounty hunter you know field that he can put together a bunch of people that really know what they're talking about and have differing expertise to share. I was looking at the lineup and there's a bunch of, um, you know, eclectic hacking styles. And, you know, you've got people from like influencers like Stoke all the way down to, you know, uh, people like Douglas Day that just really get in their requests every single time. So uh, it's really it's really cool to see the the whole the whole gamut being run there. Yeah, yeah, it should be awesome. Yep. Um. Yeah. Oh man, man. The next, the next item on the news list makes me so sad, man. I just, you know, <laughs> on Twitter, you, you know, you see Gareth Hayes talk about JavaScript stuff all the time, and he's one of those people that like you can just feel the passion when he talks about JavaScript. Like he just freaking loves JavaScript, and yes. uh, and he tweeted out earlier this week, and I, I threw it on the list that his favorite XSS vector is going to start stop working. I think was it like November when they're they're going to depreciate it. Uh, yeah, I didn't catch the exact date, yeah, but, Chrome um, 119, November, 2023, um, they're going to depreciate, uh, data URLs inside of the use element in SVGs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for those who aren't aware, this is basically like one of the really common ways that you would pop an XSS within an SVG, not mm -hmm. just like SVG on error or yeah. on load or whatever, yeah. but within the SVG element itself, you can include stuff like, um, you know, well, with this use element, um, you can use different different things. I think it's meant yeah, to it's take data, like a bunch of different data types. Yeah, it uses a data URL here and and kind of uses that within the within the SVG itself. Um, but it seems like they they want to have that that piece that uh, that data element removed from the SVG 
uh, use element, and that would result in, I guess, you potentially you could still load it externally, um, but then you've got CSP stuff that you're going to run into, so it's it's a double-edged sword there. Yeah, yeah. I know there are a couple other um, vectors, and lo looking at the web acad the web security academy on Port Swigger, mm -hmm. um, there there's these ones that use animate inside of SVG. Oh yeah, I've seen and that. And not all of them. Some of them do use that use element, but mm -hmm. not all of them do. So I'm wondering if that will still be a valid attack vector. Yeah, I mean, as long as as long as the, it's not because the use element's still staying, it's it's just that the data URL inside of the use element um, mm -hmm. is is kind of going away. Uh, and I think I'm looking at the reason for removal, and it looks like it's largely, you know, because of the sort of same origin issue that that's going on there. Um, so sad to see that go, but really cool vector. And I'd always love to see uh, Gareth Hayes talking about XSS stuff. I I have he's one of one of the people that I do have notifications turned on for, tweet notifications turned on for, because he's just like every single time it's super high quality research, and I just I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His he, book I mean, is he's amazing always... too. Yeah, I mean, he's just like he—he's such a JavaScript like fanatic, you know. Yeah. It's like all he does. It's like his main focus. So he—he's one of those people that has so much insight about the nuance about what's going on. Yeah. So any anything that you can do to like consume Gareth's Gareth's yeah. knowledge is something I would recommend. Yeah, and I—I I love that little. I love that. I love that he wrote a little book too. You know, like I, I feel like that's something that people that specialize in the industry, it's it's really handy because the book is not long. It's not very hard to consume, you know, but it, it outlines all of this cool, you know, shit that he has in his brain that otherwise we wouldn't have access to. And so I definitely, I definitely endorse that method, not only just for knowledge sharing reasons, but also just for, it's a great thing to do when you're a specialist, you know, take, take the, you know, however long it takes, do a little brain dump on this topic that you're just a super expert at and put it out there. And now you've got a product that you can, you know, you're getting reoccurring income from, and you're also sharing that knowledge with a large community, large community, excuse me. So that's, that's really, I really respect that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we've talked about this as well in the past, like any type of the, it's not, it doesn't have to be like groundbreaking research, right? Mm -hmm. But like any of that knowledge sharing type content is really amazing for building out the community and just like yeah. helping other hackers learn and get better and helping secure everything as a whole quirks and that sometimes sort of thing, it yeah. ends up being one of these things where where like eventually the browsers will come and they'll like patch something that shouldn't behave right. that way or whatever but like yeah okay yeah you know that sucks for us as hackers but it's good for security as, as a whole and i think like that insight is is valuable regardless yeah dude it makes me think of that of that i Man, did we cover it on the pod or did it just make it into the news list? But it, it, may, it makes me remember this one uh, at a live time at a live hacking event. There's this guy BitK that showed me um, this way that you can exfiltrate data via via fetch. Um, and what what you do is you you know you get it cached and then you say, hey, you force fetch to use cache. And it was like at the time it was just like, oh, this is like totally amazing because you could get mm. a cookie. You could get a cookie to, you know, uh, get the data and then it would cache the response. And then you could send the fetch request without the cookie with caching, you know, pull from the cache set to mandatory. And then it would pull the results back. And it was just like, man, this is such a genius method. And That's so really smart. Yeah, That's I mean, very it's, interesting. It's, it's sad because, you know, those those methods get deleted, you know, as soon as they become popular. But if you're lucky enough to have met, you know, a great researcher at like a live hacking event or at networking, you know, sometimes you can pick up these little tidbits that will, you know, really help you pop some crazy bugs during engagements. So. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, did you hear about this this move it uh, the move it vulnerability? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's hard, it's hard to it's hard to have not <laughs> not have heard of that man. Twitter's kind of blowing up about it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was I was reading about this, and uh, it's this like file like transfer app, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, that was my understanding. I hadn't actually heard of this before, like of what of move it until the yeah. vulnerability. They were saying it's all over the place, but I actually hadn't seen it very much. So I wonder, you know, actually how much net presence it does have. Yeah, yeah, it was super interesting. So um, I wasn't sure. They said that Huntress. Mm. Uh, is that who who owns it or is that the no, people who found that's i think that's um john hammond did some work with them and i think he uh he sort of did this whole i guess sort of i don't know if this is like an incident response yet yeah, they call it rapid response um to this sort of vulnerability and i thought this was really cool because um you know even and I, I also linked that in the click click the Twitter link in the doc right below that Joel. Like I, I love to see this sort of thing. John is like out there at four a.m. tweeting like, oh man, I can't figure out like, oh is this it? And he's like putting screenshots of code. And I just you know I read through that whole thread and I was like, man, this is why you know he rocks. This is why people you know if you can come into this with this much passion where you're up at like four a.m. like you know really just trying to grind out this this POC because what he, what he was trying to do was reverse the POC you know reverse the flow from um I guess it looked like in the beginning all he had was a packet cap or like a like a log of the various um endpoints that they hit so you know if you click that that um image at the top of the tweet it's like you know it hit move it is api.dll and then it hits a couple other things and so he's trying to like follow that flow and figure out how they they ended up popping this this shell. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing to see you know when people are that into it and that like enthralled, it, and then they look up and it's like four a.m. and you're like ah, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. Yeah, it actually looks like he works. He's a researcher at Huntress. Yeah, he so, is. Yeah, yeah. So super super interesting. It sounds like they basically yeah like they got a packet capture or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they started digging into it and trying to figure out like how it was working and, and the whole chain. And I don't want to like spoil all of this cause I think it's well, worth reading. Yeah. They, they don't drop the full exploit either, which is, you know, for me it's... a little bit disappointing, but also, you know, totally reasonable. I, I think. Surely it's already, somebody's already figured it out. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So it's a really awesome, um, I feel like this would have fit perfectly with our source code analysis episodes that we I just know. did. Um, but yeah, this is one of those cases where you just do the deep dive, you keep digging, digging, going through rabbit holes, trying to figure out like, how does this code work? How does this code work? What is this code doing? And eventually you, you get to the root of it. And, uh, and it's, it's really awesome. Um, it's a super interesting case study for sure. in, in terms of like how something like this would work out in the wild. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think that there's definitely some like learnings that you could pull away from like an organizational standpoint mm. or how could you secure your org to protect against this? Like in the future, like what kinds of rules and stuff would you want to keep an eye out for? Are there certain traffic patterns that you should be like looking out for that might have popped up if you were exploited by this, that kind of stuff? Yeah. He, he adds like some Yara rules and like some, um, indicators of compromise to the, to the write-up, which is great too. Yeah. Um, and yeah, <laughs> just like you said, you know, about going down rabbit holes, if you go to John Hammond's Twitter right now and, you know, on, on June 3rd, I saw it, that's the next day, you know, he's like, oh, we finally got it. And he's like, P.S. It doesn't have anything to do with the crazy shit that I was spewing at 4 a.m. 
<laughs> so it's like i just i feel that man and uh yeah it's it's cool to see you know it, for those of you that are always thinking like oh man i'm not sure am i going down the right path you know how do i how do i know um look at john here you know one of the most skilled guys out there on the arena you know he does education in you know cybersecurity stuff all the time shout out to his youtube channel excellent amazing youtube channel um and even he goes down these rabbit holes and ends up you know ah this is the wrong thing so it definitely happens it's a part of the process and at the end of the day if you keep on being persistent um just like john you'll you'll end up popping the full bug for sure yeah for sure um i think as well um it's really interesting like I feel like I've been in that scenario so many times where I've I've spent like eight hours or like more just like looking at one thing and I'm so invested that I don't want to step out of it. Yeah. But like, do you have any? What do you do when you're in that scenario? Well, it's it's funny you mention that because um I'm gonna actually just pull it up on my email right now. There's somebody messaged um this week uh into info at criticalthinkingpodcast.io. And he said, this is the question he said, when you are hunting and you're doing recon and getting a feel for the app, you have something interesting that you are poking at. How do you know you are onto something promising? Do you have any tips for knowing when it is time to cut bait and move on? How to know when the, pot uh, the potential for success is there or whether it's not worth the effort? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's the rub, right? You know, to just bring it back to the Shakespearean eye, that's the rub. You know, whether it is nobler to continue to pursue down your rabbit hole or to, you know, I forget the rest of the quote, but it's Macbeth. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I was not. I English we're was maybe my least we're favorite class. There. Wow. <laughs> they they made us do like a like a presentation of that, and I was the guy reading that, so I should remember it. But you know, whether it is nobler to continue to hack or whether it is nobler to not continue to hack, um, is the question. And yeah, it's really it's really hard to know, man. Um, and I think at some point, you know, you kind of get to a point where you're like, all right, I've looped on my on my brain so many times. Like I keep on just coming to the same conclusion, same conclusion, same conclusion. And for me, it's probably five or 10 cycles of that, you know, somewhere between five and 10 cycles of that before I'm like, man, I'm not really sure I'm going to find anything else at this at this specific code pathway. And that's when you start working back. And I will add, this is one of the things that I think de um, was developed for me a lot by the OSCP. Um, because the OSCP has a, has a time limit, right? You know, you've got 24 hours and if you spend too much time going down a rabbit hole that you can't, you know, that doesn't end up with anything, you've lost a bunch of time. So, um, that is, that is something that pretty much only comes with experience. I think is, is knowing whether, when to, to cut, you know, cut your losses and move on or whether there's something there. Um, so I would say, you know, to the listeners that are wondering about this question, um, yeah, I'll just call them CG. Thanks for the thanks for the question, CG. Um, you know, y experiment with it, right? So you know, if you maybe you'll do one session where you're like, all right, anytime I run into a wall, I'm just gonna move along, right? And I know some people that do that actually, and and you know, it works for them, and that's great. And I know some people that, you know, if they run into a wall 15 times at the same endpoint, they're still gonna keep going at it. So you got to figure out what is right for you as a hacker and where that limit lies. And, and it can be something that's intuitive uh, or it can be something you know that's set in concrete saying, hey, I've thought, well, where am I going to go? Five times now, time to move on, check, you know, and you, you move along. So what, what do you think about that, Joel? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very similar where it's not like, I'm not an instant kind of pass when it 
when it's pushing back a little bit. Yeah. I do like to push through it a little bit further just to see like, am I missing something here? Is there something more to this? Am I just mm -hmm. doing something like, you know, very minor here that is blocking me up here? Like sometimes I'll, I'll be like testing something for a while and I've just made like a simple error in my request or something. That That's worst? like, it's the worst, right? You spent like an hour and you're like, oh, I guess this is like total. And then you're like, oh my God, I've been using the wrong, the wrong request this whole time or something like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so where that pair hacking can really help too, right? Yeah, that extra set of eyes is so useful. Just having somebody who's like, hey, uh, that's the that's the wrong request. Like, <laughs> just that the extra little second brain on your shoulder. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. Um, but I think for me, it, it's something like, it's very similar to like what you have. It's like some, it's, I don't have a specific number, but it's a certain number of times where I've run it and hit the brick wall. And I'm like, okay, I should probably move on. And some of it will also depend on whether or not I have other interesting things to be looking at. I feel like that mm -hmm. also affects yeah. my, like how lenient I am to just move on and go to the next thing. Because if something has been really like pulling at me, like this is something interesting I need to look at, but I need to finish what I'm looking at right now. If I'm not getting anywhere with what I'm looking at right now, it, I'm more likely to go start yeah. looking at that new thing. No, that that totally makes sense. And I, I think I, I have that same mentality. But for me, I think it feels a little bit more like a surrender when I move away from it. Like, I, I think I do have a little bit more of that fighting spirit than is good for me sometimes, you know? And I, I've talked about this publicly on the pod before, how I used to not really do that at all. And I would just move along. And, you know, that was those were the days when I was finding a bunch of like, you know, IDORs and access control stuff because I was getting a bunch of volume because I was moving along so quickly as soon as anything would, would you know, bump into my way, right? And, you know, yeah. if, if it's a function of volume, you know, for those sort of bugs because it works or it doesn't work, it's not, there's no fiddling uh, norm normally. But um, when I started, you know, banging my head up against a wall sometimes when I saw an attack vector, that's when I started finding these more serious vulns um, that are more deeply embedded in the apps and started walking away with some bigger bounties. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, looking at the statistics, my amount earned hasn't changed that much between those two strategies. I think it's a little bit higher where I'm at now, but, um, you know, my amount earned does not actually deviate that much because the, like, like we've said it before, those IDORs and those access control issues can be extremely impactful. And if you can get a bunch of those, it really pays off big. So. It's, it's really up to the individual hacker. Yeah. So so do you have a preference between the two in, in hindsight, like having done both and seeing that there's not a huge impact on the on the earnings? Would you would you ever go back to the first one or, or no? You... I mean, I, I think my preference is strongly where I'm at now because it's more interesting <laughs> and, it, and it feels more risky. And sometimes it's a little bit less, you know, a little bit more stressful because you're like, well, if this doesn't pop, then I'm screwed, you know, but um. But, you know, I think as I've developed as a hacker in my stress management and my anxiety management as well, you know, over bug bounty, and as I've become a little bit more financially stable as well, and, and you know, realizing, hey, it's not the end of the world. And I've also just become a little bit more confident in who I am as a hacker as well, you know, in my identity as a hacker. Um, I, I, you know, definitely lean a little bit more towards the latter now. It's like, oh, let me, let me spend a little extra time. Let me find some cool shit and, and um, spend a little bit less time grinding through the the burp requests. Um, but I definitely recommend that in the beginning for any beginner as well, because if you can hit a lot of volume, you'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of HTTP requests. And like we talked about, those reps lead you to be a better hacker. So there's, there's definitely, you know, you could go either way, depending on which way you want to grow. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the other things I recommend is especially this, this happens early on a lot. When you first start hacking, you're just going to be like looking at stuff and it's going to be hard to find your first bug mm -hmm. and moving on is really difficult because when you first start, you don't know when you should move on. And like, yeah. you have like no context in terms of like, what, what does that feel like? Or like, where is the right place to draw the line? Mm -hmm. And so I'd say like, if, when you do decide like to move on, don't, like don't think about it too much like don't yeah. let it beat you up because you have to remember that like all of bug bounty is basically trying to beat the odds you're mm. trying to like find something that is bad that shouldn't exist and you're trying to like break the system that is designed to keep you know customer data safe or whatever it is mm -hmm. and so if you don't find anything it doesn't mean that like you failed right it just means Absolutely. like that app might be secure and yeah. that's good and that's that's okay and you know it's time to just move on to the next thing and find something that feels less secure so that you can find all the holes in it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we preach this on the pod all the time. You know, there's a whole team of people that are dedicated to you not being able to do your job <laughs> yes. when you're doing book bounty. So it's a really, it's a really challenging thing. But we believe in you. You got it. So yes. uh, go get those bounties. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say, uh, you know, for the more experienced hackers out there as well, don't get set in your ways. Don't, don't get so tied up in your approach that you never... That you never experiment because i know i grew a lot as a hacker as i started um experimenting away into the more rabbit holy sort of uh find the weird shit, uh sort of things rather than the volume of, of requests um so i think there's a lot of room for growth there as you experiment with um the various techniques so. yeah 100 nice man well we, we that was that was a nice little little vibe we deviated a little bit from the plan but i'm, I'm glad we talked about that because that's that's just really important things yeah for sure um all right, so this is what I had on, on, on the plan for today, Joel. Um, we did, as we mentioned before, we've done uh, a good bit of hardware hacking lately um, with the live hacking event that uh, we last went to. So this is the episode where we talk a little bit more about that, where we give some details on some of the techniques that we used and uh, kind of go into detail. Um, so, I mean, we could start with the hardware recon. Is that Does that work for you, Joel? Or you got anywhere else you want to start? Now nah, let's 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 start from the top, you know. Yeah. So, um click click that link that's about that's uh, in under the um the next bullet point there uh, cuz I wanted to ask you something specifically about this. So, you know, yes, if, if you scroll down um and we'll link this link. This is uh this is River Loop Security's hardware uh hacking right up. You know, you scroll down and eventually they're soldering onto test pins on the back side of an EMMC EMMC chip, right? Yep. Um so for those of you that just that just sounded like Garbage. Uh, EMMC is an embedded multimedia card. Is that right? I think. That's uh, right. Yes, yes. Yes. Embedded MMC multimedia, multimedia card. card. Yeah. Um, and and that is sort of like the hard drive of these IoT applications where they're storing the file system. It's the non-volatile storage, right? Um, and so one of the reasons we want to get at that is because it contains the source code uh, in, in the actual file system for the IoT device, we can be really insightful to us as hackers. Um, so uh, what I wanted to talk, wanted, wanted to ask you, Joel, in this sort of uh, hardware recon section is like, there are these test pins on the back of that and we can use those, if we can find these test pins that correlate to this EMMC protocol, I guess we can use those to read from the EMMC chip as well, and, not, and we don't even have to pull the chip right off the board. Is that right? Yes. So in some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Okay. Yeah, they talk about it a little bit. So typically, if you want to read off an, MM off an MMC chip while it's like 
in use Mm -hmm. that's probably not a great idea um, for a couple reasons it it would be basically like trying to read a hard drive while it's plugged in and being used Mm -hmm. so there are other operations happening on the drive at the same time from a different like from the host os that hasn't mounted and so it might be reading and writing at the same time it might be performing operations it might have stuff locked like you never know and there might be like conflicting data with the controller within the mm with the mm within the mmc Mm -hmm. that will cause it to like have problems so sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't but it's really good for at least at the minimum like looking at like debug like what's going on like is this are these pins the right pins is this chip functional like am i looking in the right area all that kind of stuff but it's, it's potentially possible to use those test points um to interact with the chip if we can figure out a way to have the chip um activated you know with with power um right and not have the cpu you know hitting that same bus is that is that right right yeah so like to the best of my understanding Mm -hmm. you could literally just pull up the spec for that chip read through it see what the voltage is supposed to be see what the amperage is supposed to be Mm -hmm. take out a dc power supply Mm -hmm. set it to the right voltage and amperage connect it to the vcc and ground and power it up power the power it up yeah, and then okay, so that's cool because that that actually gives us a second a second um, sort of route to get, or I guess maybe a third or fourth route depending on how much stuff we get to cover today. But um, essentially, for me as a more of a more of a beginner, I, I feel like I've kind of got a grip on some of the hardware st- hacking stuff now. But what what my playbook kind of looked like was like okay. Is there a UART interface on this device? So you search around, you look for the UART interface, and we'll talk about UART and JTAG on a different episode. That'll be um, a hardware hacking episode too. But um, and then if there, if you can't find those, then you just do a, a, a chip pull and throw it into a reader, and then try to pull the operating system off and that way. But there's actually another method that doesn't destroy your device because that's the problem with the chip off method is it destroys your device. And if you can use, if you can, you know, solder some pins onto these, uh, uh, onto these sort of test test pins there, or solder some connectors onto those test pins and hook that up to a um, some sort of device that can communicate over EMMC, then uh, and I think in this in this uh, blog that we'll link in the description, they use a logic analyzer here to figure out which. Um, which individual pin correlates to what part of the EMMC, right? Yep. Um, then you could potentially get a, a file system read through through that, and it would still come across as like an SD card to your computer, right? Yeah. So generally, like I like this approach because it's mm-hmm. very like ground up. Like it yeah. doesn't require you to pull up the the data sheet or anything like that. However, I would say in most cases, like ninety nine percent of cases. You can literally just take the chip number, Google it, pull up the data sheet, and you know exactly what the pinout is. Like oh, really? most of the time, wow. yeah, most of the time you you don't need to be like figuring out which is the clock pin because they're not changing that stuff. Like that comes mm-hmm. straight from the manufacturer of the chip. Sure. Um, there are cases that I've seen where uh, either there will be like uh, so so typically there's a dot on top of a chip, and that dot is in one of the corners, and yeah. that references which one is chip, which one is pin one. Um, and so oh, sometimes they'll put a dot somewhere else or, or they'll put a dot on multiple corners. So you don't know which, which pin is pin one. And so you have to figure it out yourself. That's savage, dude. That's so freaking yes. savage. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether or not that's like purposeful or whether or not that's like just, you know, they make a chip that can be used in multiple configurations. So they put it, you know, in multiple, I don't, I don't know, but, um, I have seen that out, out, like I've seen pictures of that on the wild. So 
um that's just something to be aware of but if you have a very like straightforward chip it's like a single dot on the top uh you can also just there are easy things you can verify so for example every chip is going to have a voltage and a ground pin so if you take your multimeter and you put it on continuity testing uh, which will basically tell whether or not the signal is going between one probe and the other probe um typically there's a way to make it so it beeps and then you, mm -hmm. you tap yeah. the the leads together and it goes beep right so that's continuity testing you put one lead on the ground pin from your data sheet you read the data sheet you go okay this should be the ground pin and then you either you can go as far back as you want you could go all the way to the power connector mm -hmm. and one of those pins should be power one of them should be ground and you can test and see is there continuity between these pins yes or no and you can do the same thing for vcc and that's also how you can test these te the test pads and see is this pad pointing to this pin or this pin on the chip um and then that's a pretty easy way to determine whether or not it's using a standard pin out or not nice nice so i mean i guess we can do that to a certain degree with with a multimeter right and yep. and and you know with the continuity testing like you were talking about but when it gets to something like for example in this article it was talking about the various pieces of emmc protocol which i'll i'll kind of uh touch on very lightly for for the audience that haven't read the the um the write-up yet but essentially there's three main parts of of the protocol that you need to identify there's the there's the clock there's the cmd which is um the the line that's used for sending commands and then there's uh data zero um and that's the the minimum requirements that you need to be able to communicate over emmc um, right. with the actual chip so this is this right. is uh we're we're getting much lower than we normally do here on the pod because we mostly talk about you know web and mobile stuff but this is actually talking about hardware level protocol stuff which i think is really really fun to dive into um yeah but, but you know when once we start trying to identify all those little pieces that's where we really need a logic analyzer versus a multimeter because we have to be able to actually read the blips in in um power coming across those those various um lines is that right yeah, yeah. So basically, like what what the logic analyzer is going to be doing is it's going to be looking at at shifts between high and low, mm -hmm. uh, where that's basically like a high voltage or a low voltage, sure. where it's either drawing, where it's pulling it down, or it's pushing it up. And so, for example, the clock pin that they identify super mm -hmm. easy to identify that because it runs like a clock, right? It goes sure. on off on off on off on off on a very regular schedule, and that's basically telling the chip like how fast it should be operating, mm -hmm. and then data is for data and CMD is for telling it what to do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's basically as straightforward as that, but logic analyzers will make that so much easier just because a lot of the stuff that's built into the software will do it automatically. Mm. So in the article, they use a, a CLA. Uh, I use, uh, it's called a analog discovery two uh, by Digilent. Okay. Um, it's pretty good. It's cheaper than a CLA, but uh, I think, if I were to buy one again, I'd probably go with the CLA just because um, it's a little bit higher spec. It's a little bit more expensive, but the software is really, really good. And it's generally considered one of the top of the line tools that are out there. Um, yeah. Digilent actually did just like last week announce um, the Analog Discovery 3, which Ooh. is an improvement to what I have. Um, it has, I think faster polling rates, faster measurement rates. It uses USB-C instead of micro USB. It's oh, got a nice. couple different things. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, uh, any any sort of like logic analyzer is going to be a good investment if you're doing this yeah. type of hardware hacking just to identify like what's what's going on. Is this pin UART? Is this pin JTAG? Sure. Is this nothing? Like what is it? Yeah. 
that that yeah, that's a good point. I I think I, I got a little I get a little excited about this stuff and I jump right in. Let me let me just say, you know, this is relevant to you all as bug bounty hunters out there. You know, the majority of our audiences are active, you know, active bug bounty hunters, because this is a very, very untouched scope normally. Like if you can go ahead, because one, because the tools are very expensive. And you know what we talk about here on the pod, you invest the money, you get the tools, you buy the premium. You know, and it opens up a bunch of scope that pays for itself. Um, and, and a lot of these hardware hacking programs out there on HackerOne or BugCrowd, you know, you have to buy the piece of hardware yourself and then you're going to break it and it's going to yep. be annoying. Um, but if you go through that, um, that difficulty, if you pay the price, the bounties are much higher. So I'm hoping that we can inspire some of you to sort of pivot into the hardware hacking realm. Um, it's really fascinating. And there are a lot of really good write-ups out there actually on it. Um, and so, and it's not as, as hard as you would think to pivot into it. Yeah. And I think one of the things I would recommend, if you or somebody that you know mm -hmm. has a background in electrical engineering, yeah, this is a great space to dig into <laughs> because like a fundamental electrical engineering background is so helpful for just understanding some of the basic stuff. Like, why are things behaving the way they are? Uh, how how would I interface with this? If I want to read data off of this pin, do I need to like have a pull down resistor? What is a pull down resistor, mm. right? Like there are like so many fundamental electronic questions that would be so much easier to answer if you have any sort of electronics background. It doesn't even have to be like a full like electrical engineering background. If you've done basic electronics stuff mm -hmm. for many years, Maybe even which I know lots of people have. Like yeah, yeah, like robotics, any of that kind of stuff. Working with electronics, you're familiar with like voltages, um, like how circuit boards are designed, created, built, all that kind of stuff. Like this is a great area. There's not a lot of people who know this kind of stuff. It's a very like sparse knowledge space within hacking. The bounties so, are good. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you can pop one of these devices, it usually pays like a significant amount of money because most of these are owned by like large conglomerates. They have a lot of money on the line. They have a lot of people with this device in their hands. Yeah. And there's just a skill set mismatch too, right? There's not as many people that can do hardware hacking stuff as there are web because it requires tools. It requires background knowledge. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, the competition is, is a little bit less and there's more of a demand and, you know, supply and demand just sort of dictates that the bounties would be higher. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, sure. I also just wanted to mention um, two things on on what you just said. One, this is a great um, reference to uh, the conversation that Corbin and I had last week on the pod, and we'll link that in the in the description. But um, we have a great conversation about what kind of degree is best for a hacker to get, and this is you know this conversation we're having with Joel here is one of the main reasons why I suggest a computer engineering or or even maybe even electrical engineering degree for some hackers because you get a lot lower level understanding of things, and it's so much easier to build on top when you have the bottom bricks. Right. You know, think of it, think of it, you know, sometimes if you're trying to get an understanding of things and you don't know what's happening underneath, you kind of got this very shaky understanding, your very shaky base, and then you're trying to build bricks on top of it. But if you have a solid base, then it becomes so much easier to just boom, build up the wall and, and you've got a great understanding. I don't know, man, my, I have a little bit of a self-consciousness about my analogies because Mariah, Mariah is like, Justin, that analogy doesn't make any sense. But hopefully that one, hopefully that one came through to you guys. No, no, I, I 100% know what you mean. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I get that same sense where, like, especially with hardware hacking, I'll be honest, like hardware hacking is that for me as well, because I'll be like working on something 
and I'll be so confused as to why it's not working. And a lot of the time, it's just because I've made a simple mistake mm. due to a lack of fundamental knowledge or mm. understanding. And it's very hard to find those problems or answer those like unknown questions without the knowledge, right? So like, I think this applies to like beginner hackers as well. It's like, how do you know when to draw the line to stop hacking and move on? How do you know when you have no experience and no like knowledge or context, like when to draw that line? Do you mm -hmm. just guess, right? Like, is there any sort of like concrete identifier? And that that is very similar for like hardware hacking where it's like, how do you know if like this is just a fundamental thing that like you, you need to go learn or if this is just a common problem that even the experts hit or like what is going on here? Where do you draw the line? So I wouldn't beat yourself up too much over it, but if you have that solid fundamental knowledge, that that solid foundation, it's going to make things so much easier. Yeah, and and I think the the procrastination education uh, piece with hardware hacking is a little bit different too, because sometimes you really do need to be like, ah, actually, I don't know about this very specific little thing. For example, we were Joel and I were working on a on a project where we needed to read from an RPMB sort of. Uh, it's yeah, not really a partition. memory block. Reprotected yeah. <laughs> memory block, uh, you know, on, on an EMC chip. And uh, we, we had never even heard of that. So we both had to go and like read the white paper on that specific, you know, piece of technology and kind of understand what it does at a lower level to be able to come back and hack. So it, it, yeah. there's definitely some 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 different tricks, you know, in the hardware hardware hacking field that that to get caught up on. But if you can pull it off, one, you know, I I, I, would, I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget this moment in my entire life, Joel. That first time we took the chip off of there and I put it into my computer and I just saw like 15 different partitions, like new disk, new disk, new disk, new disk found. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It's so satisfying. Me. Like I cannot <laughs> believe I just pulled, I took this device apart. I took the chip out of the device and I put it into, a, you know, a thing and my computer just read it. Like that's nuts. So there's there's lots of really amazing feelings that kind of come along with uh, you know diving into hardware hacking and you know finding your first little pathway to getting source code or uh, you know a bug. So yeah, uh, dude, I'm not gonna lie. Even after all that reading on RPMBs, dude, no one. That's such a stupid I, I, protocol, it's man. Still, like, I, I don't even know. Like, like I, I don't know if I could describe like what it like what it is, how it works, like yeah. how it's supposed to be, like if we did anything right there, because like yeah. when we eventually got on the on the device while it was running we could access it but after we had pulled the chip we couldn't so yeah. I, I don't know I, it's still very confusing well, to me but it's it's a super interesting topic area yeah it, it's you know it's replay protected memory block right so it, it replay oh yeah, that's what it is. it's replay protected memory block and and so essentially the whole point of that is like you shouldn't be able to write to that block without um, having some some going through the authentication protocol. But there's a bunch of things that say online that because the spec is a little fuzzy about whether you can read from that without having the authentication key. And really, if you read the actual doc, the actual spec for the for the device, it shows that the encryption piece of RPMB is just um, an a HMAC on the read side, right? So you know if you don't choose to validate that that MAC, then uh, you know you can read from it just fine, um, and it's mostly I think designed to um, protect against tampering um, at a hardware level. So anyway, it's a cool thing. Yeah. I, I do I do know a lot more about it now than I than I did before. Um, so that's that's cool. But you know I I don't know when that will ever come in handy again. Next <laughs> yes. time I'm doing like some, it's just some one of those crazy... little brain uh, brain space fillers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So. <clears throat> Getting back, so we, we look around on the board for test pins. Um, 
Let's see if we can hook up to those test pins, see if we can figure out some way to get, you know, power up the chip uh, via VCC or, you know, maybe I think in the article. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely yeah. definitely check out the article because there's still like some stuff they mentioned in here about glitching with the CPU to like try to get it to not try to read over that that um you know read that disk so maybe there's some cool stuff you can do there yeah yeah you could definitely do do some like power glitching and stuff to try and get the cpu in a weird state um i do generally like trying to power it with the onboard power stuff okay uh, if i can so for example mm -hmm. if i'm trying to use like uart or something yeah i definitely want to have it do its normal i i basically want the device to think that everything is normal and that mm -hmm. it's getting all the same you know power delivery and everything right. that it would while functioning normally instead of trying to rig that myself, I probably could, but I don't know if something's gonna go wrong, right? I don't know if there's special power requirements that the chip is doing or that other things on the board might need. And the last thing you wanna do is fry something on yeah, the board accidentally because there's so much, there, that's like the biggest risk in my opinion is that you fry something in an expensive piece of hardware and then you have to buy another one or call it quits. Yeah, that th those are nice. And sometimes HackerOne, and I, I assume BugCrowd does this too, but I haven't had that experience with BugCrowd, so I don't yes. know. They do, okay. Um, yeah, it's because BugCrowd doesn't know that I can hack hardware. I need to hit them up and be like, hey, Same by the same, way. Yeah, me submits one bug yeah. a year on BugCrowd. And it's like, like who is hardware, this guy? God, no. Um, yeah, but you know, it's really nice when the HackerOne programs and the BugCrowd programs actually send you the hardware to test on without you having to pay for it. Okay, so... We've, we talked about the logic analyzer. We talked about a little bit of recon. So let's say, for example, we can't get the test pin to work, test pin method um, with our sort of natural power, and we can't get it to power up, you know, giving it power directly. So we got to go for a chip pull. Um, and yeah, so there are some, there's some equipment that we need for this. Um, and I kind of noted some of them down here. Joel, you can kind of take a quick look over that make sure i wasn't missing anything but uh the essentials are a heat a heat sort of a heat gun or a heat hot air station i think is what they're called and yep. um and that will allow you to just very send very focused hot air on the specific chip so you know you strip down the device you find the emmc chip um and you can find that by googling you know what text is on it and sometimes it's obvious from the way that it looks but yeah you, you know you set that hot air station up you shoot hot air on it and then what happens? Yeah, so basically, for for like the mental image for people who are just mm -hmm. listening, a hot air station is if you've seen a heat gun, mm -hmm. it's not like a blow dryer. It's like just the like straight part of a blow of a blow dryer without mm -hmm. the handle, yeah. and it basically is just an electric coil that blows hot air. And then it has these little funnels on the end, like you mentioned, that like narrow the hot air down to like a very you can see yes, it. Yes, you're, you're pointing at it right sorry, behind you. For yes. those on YouTube, you can actually see it on my on my desk behind yes. me. But for those of you on audio, listen to Joel. Sorry. Yeah. So there's like a little, you know, it's like a giant pen kind of thing. And it's wired yeah. up to this power supply. And then on the power supply, you set what temperature you want it to run at. Mm -hmm. And then you, there's a little nozzle on the end that controls how large of an airflow that it's it's pushing hot air out. And then it just has a fan over a heating element and it just blows hot air. Okay. And this hot air can go... Very, very hot. Very, like, burn very, yourself. very hot. Easily yeah. burn yourself. Very, 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 very hot. So this is not something to like just, you know, mess around with. Obviously, be careful with, as you're using these tools. Um, you know, respect respect what it can do. It is a heat gun. It creates heat. You can get burned. I, uh, so I have just gotten be burned. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me as well. <laughs> Yes, I uh, I had a hot plate that I was that I was also doing some desoldering with, and I just like stuck my hand on it by oh, accident because no. I forgot Ugh. it was on. 
So that was fun. Um, but yeah, so a hot gun, uh, a heat gun, a hot air, hot air reflow rework station. Mm -hmm. It's called a, a lot of different things. Yeah, we'll link um, some stuff down in the description for for those of you that kind of want a, a basic setup. Yeah, but what you need to what you, all you need to know is that basically chips generally speaking have two different forms they have pins that are like coming off of the side of them that are then soldered down to the board and then they have these things called a bga a mm. ball grid array and a bga is essentially little tiny uh balls of solder that connect underneath they like it literally sit it sandwiches on top there's the chip then there's balls of solder and then there's the board right underneath it and there's contacts on the board underneath it so cool and it holds it, you know, once the solder is not melted, it holds it there, essentially acting as the pins that connects it between the, the, the contacts on the bottom of the, the chip and the contacts on top of the board. Um, and so when we use a hot air gun, we're essentially heating up that so those little balls of solder underneath such that they liquefy enough and then you pull the chip off. Uh, and that's it. Like that. that's basically all you're doing. You're doing what you would do with a soldering gun or, or a soldering iron sorry like uh, you know the hot tip thing and you know you put it on whatever mm -hmm. it smokes and shit it's all that but it's just like from a distance in, right in so you're just doing it with with, with hot, hot air. air yeah yep with hot air yeah and, and so you know i guess more co more concretely you know you get the hot hot air station and you're you're kind of using that pen and you're going back and forth and back and forth and um <clears throat> i think the last time we did an assessment, Joel, we set it to about 400 degrees Celsius. Um, but I think the best way to do it to preserve the safety for the devices, <laughs> excuse me, is to set it at like a lower level, maybe like 250 or so, and then sort of slowly work your way up. So, you know, you shoot it, you know, back and forth, back and forth for about a minute and a half, two minutes. And then, you, you know, you try to lift the chip and it's, you're not going to be forcing it. It's literally just going to be a lift. Like you're going to put the, grab your tweezers. That's another thing you need. You're going to grab your tweezers. You're going to grab the chip with the tweezers and you're going to try to lift up. And if it doesn't come with you, don't force it. And then you, you yeah. know, sort of back off, let the chip cool down a little bit because you don't want to fry it. So maybe wait two or three minutes. And then, you know, bump up the heat to 275 or 300 or something like that. Um, and then sort of work your way up. Um, I think the, the place we found it was around 400, 425 maybe is a, is a good spot. Um, and then eventually, you know, you do that for sometimes it's not even 30 seconds. Sometimes it's like, you know, a, a shorter amount of time and you'll be able to just lift the chip right off. Um, and then you've done a successful pull, hopefully, if you didn't rip yeah. off any pads. Yeah, so I'm sure that there are some some like hardware people cringing, <laughs> cringing as they're listening to this, being like 400 degrees, 425. Yeah. Um. So the one the one thing I'll say is most of these hot air guns are made cheaply, mm -hmm. and they do not have the best quality control, yeah. and they are not the most consistent things, especially across brands and across devices. So your mileage is going to vary probably greatly from someone else's and you will just need to do some testing on your own um like justin said i would start at a low temp like start at melting point of solder so like probably around 200 c and just work your way up if you're you know you're constantly moving your air gun you're heating the whole area the th the thing that you mentioned this, but you didn't really explain it. Mm. You need to be constantly moving the air gun around the chip because you need mm. all of the balls of solder underneath the chip to be melted at the same time. Evenly, yeah. That's Evenly, very important. Right. 
and the other thing is flux oh my god flux is your best friend yeah so yeah so flux based flux all it basically it helps solder this is not really optional i I, you know this is very important (laughs) yes you need flux like big time so flux helps solder a flow it helps prevent it from oxidizing and so essentially what that's going to do uh solder has surface tension essentially that's what holds it in place um when justin said that the chip will be very easy to pull off it's like a water bug on top of a a surface of water okay the the chip is basically magneted in place because there are copper contacts underneath it and there are copper contacts on the top of the chip and the balls of solder that are between it are surface tension to those those pieces of copper and it's holding like if you were to bump the chip it would snap back basically because the solder is holding it in place if it's doing that that means it's ready to lift so your goal is that you want all the solder to be liquid enough that you can basically bump the chip and see it wiggle and then just lift it and it's very there should be no force you're you're not peeling you're not you're not sort of you know starting at one side and like sort of lifting it up a little bit no you're gonna break the chip that way don't don't do that yeah it's really you know very lightly and you know, maybe not even with the pointed tip of your tweezers because you don't want to like scratch it or like, you know, cause any damage to the chip. You're just kind of gently pushing against it. And if you, it, like Joel said, if you don't see that sort of um, movement, then it's not ready to yeah. pull. So, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of really good videos. Well, actually, there's not. There's a couple really good videos out yeah, there. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you'll find, I think, a lot of these are more like for repair yeah, and they don't they don't care so much about the integrity of the chip that they're pulling off. Um, and that's fine uh, as like a demonstration, but just keep that in mind with temperature, right? Like generally speaking, if you were to read the spec sheet for these chips, these chips are not designed to be in environments that are above probably like 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Or like you know 30 degrees celsius or something meanwhile we're heating them up to like 200 400 degrees celsius so you know part part of that is that that's the direct temperature coming out of the gun but that's not the temperature that's hitting the chip and that's also why we want to move it around and we want to keep constant flow so that all that heat isn't targeted into one specific place that's going to fry or melt stuff within the chip mm. um so yeah, those tweezers, super useful. If you look at any videos online, you're going to see basically lots of flux, lots of moving the heat gun around. Eventually, Very you know, they'll tweezer. tap it. They'll yeah. tap it with like some really fine point tweezers and they'll see that it, it moves and then they just grab the edges of it and just lift it up. Yeah. Um, you know, mi- microscopes, some people really like to do it under microscopes. Some people like to do it under like a magnifying glass. Some people like to just do it with their eyeballs. Depending on the size of the chip, you may or may not need to do that. Um, you yeah. know, it's really, it's really up to you and your your yeah. eyesight, I guess. But um, the, I, I do it without a microscope. The, the other thing is, for those of you watching on YouTube, again, you can see over my shoulder this this little device that Joel, uh, you know, freaking influenced me into buying. <laughs> um, it's called what, what is it called? Is it called Handy Hands? Handy Hands. That's it. Yeah, and it's got like these these little sort of for those of you listening, it's sort of like Doc Ock style, um, you know flexible arms that kind of grip the the uh, the actual board and then they have sort of a, um, a magnifying glass light and they've got like a little uh, clamp there that you can use to hold the board and it's it's just got some nice things that make the whole process go smoother um, and so I would recommend those uh, that made it a lot yeah. easier for me I know when I because I didn't have that uh, when we, Joel and I were doing the my first pull I was actually trying to uh, <laughs> heat up the 
chip on top of a heat sink to keep yes. it flat. And I was, and Joel was like, "Dude, what are you doing? No, stop!" Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a good recommend there. Um, yeah. And then any and then, kind of handy hands is really good. Yeah, the really good product. I, I really like it. Um, and then, so once you pull the chip off, you got to clean it and you got to clean it better than you think you got to clean it. Um, just coming from a beginner's perspective here. Cause I was like, ah, you know, this is probably fine. Nah, you really want to take the time with isopropyl alcohol and a Q-tip and, you know, gently with some tweezers and, you know, you want to put, uh, I think you, Joel, even use like, uh, the tip of a soldering, um, iron and sort of drag some, some flux or some, uh, some solder around on it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's called reflowing. Mm -hmm. And basically, you take like, you know, a larger than normal blob of solder, and you can just heat it up and and get it. So it's, it's like, malleable stuck sorts, kind yeah. of, yeah, it's melted, but it's, it's stuck to the end of your um, soldering iron tip. And then you just want to glide that ball of solder over the contacts over the, the copper contacts on the bottom side of the chip after you've removed it. And that's going to one, pick up any extra solder that, that is on those pins. And it's also going to uh, put a thin layer of solder back on top of any ones that don't have solder on them. Mm -hmm. So it's going to basically like clean up. It's going to uniformly uniform. Yeah, right, right, right. And then you just, you know, lift it off and you should have the, your, your big blob of solder still on your, nice. your, your iron and, that's going to help prevent any contacts from getting bridged, any of that kind of stuff. The uh, the flux, yeah, isopropyl alcohol, the higher percentage, the better. 99% if you can get it. 91 is probably what you'll find at like a store or something. Um, but yeah, just a Q-tip uh, or a cotton swab or anything like that. Um, you know, just be aware that it can leave like little um, fibers behind. Yeah, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 So just be aware of that. Um, you know, some Q-tips are less fibrous than others, I guess, less hairy than others. So yeah, what, um, what I did when I was doing it was I actually pulled off a little bit of the hair, you know, and kind of made it a little bit less hairy, you know, when I yeah. first started using the Q-tip and then, you know, that sort of got it to drop less fibers. So, or maybe yeah. even you could like, you know, twist it in your, in your hand and try to compact some of that down so that it doesn't leave as many fibers on there. Cause the, that is a pain to get off afterwards. I, I think maybe I used a microfiber cloth or something like that at one point to, to try to get this yeah. off. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, reflowing it and using isopropyl to clean any excess uh, flux. Um, those are the two ways that I generally clip, uh, clean the bottom of a chip. If you're having a read problem with a chip and it looks like visibly like there's no defects in the chip, there's no physical damage, all the contacts look like they're intact, it doesn't look like any of them have been ripped off or anything like that, clean it again. Just mm -hmm. that's number one i, I yeah. just say clean it again because we had that happen both on my side and justin's side where a chip wasn't reading properly in the reader took some more iso just cleaned it one more time there must have been like a thin layer of flux or something that was you know Locking interrupting connection. the yeah. yeah i don't know but uh yeah that fixed it so. and that last one that last pull that you did on the last exercise or on the last <laughs> you know thing we were working on like it was i mean he was holding it up to the you know to the webcam and it looked like it just came out of the factory man it was like clean as could be so that's mint. the goal yes. it was mint yes. um so that was that was really cool um and then one of the other things i just wanted to mention we're going back you know so well actually we'll go back after let's let's go ahead and finish this up so you clean it and then we're going to go ahead and put it in a emmc chip reader um there are quite a few different devices out there um the only one i have experience using is not on my desk right now but it's it's an all socket emmc reader um very easy to use it has a bunch of uh nice little 
uh, plastic fittings you can use for different sizes of EMMCs. It does not, we did run into an issue last time where it actually didn't have the right plastic size um, to get it to read, which was kind of a pain, but um, uh, we found another way to do it. So that was good. Um, but yeah, so that's one option. And then I, I know people also use something called a, a T56. Um, yeah. Uh, let me pull it up. Universal programmer. Um, and I've had some yeah, I, with that. So, yeah. So I have both of these, the BGA. So the all socket BGA EMMC reader, mm -hmm. super, super useful. Super like you simple. mentioned, it basically has different base plates that, mm -hmm. um, will hold it over the right pin, like the pin readers within mm -hmm. the, the socket adapter. Um, the thing to note about that is one, it's quite expensive for like, it's a very targeted tool. So it's designed for, I think it's BGA 159 or something, or 186 or, I mean, let me pull it up real quick. Yeah, and, and when he says it's very expensive, I mean, it's it's in the hundreds range, not in the thousands range, because I, I'll just throw it yeah, out there. Like, it was $87, but it's it's just this adapter, right? $87 plus $8 of shipping. Um, and it's designed for, uh, EMMC FBGA 153 and 169. Sure. Okay. So specifically that's like, those are two different form factors of chip. Uh, it might refer to like the number of, no, it doesn't, it can't be the number of solder, but it's, it's, it's like, it's a specific form factor of chip basically. And you'll see like, if you're reading the data sheet that there will be different form factors for different chips, a lot of them will fall into the same categories but as just mentioned for example we pulled a bga chip that was i think it was a bga 153 but it wasn't the right you know size dimensions it didn't have the right. faceplate to hold it in the adapter so you know we couldn't read it very easily um, and i had even tried like 3d printing an adapter to, to fit it in there and it, it didn't it didn't really work that well yeah yeah that was that was uh, that was a little bit of a bummer. So definitely, you know, if you're gonna buy specialized equipment for a specific thing, you know, I think these all socket EMMC readers will cover the large majority of the ones. But yep. you know, you got to know you may run into a situation and you may want to measure the size of the chip beforehand in millimeters and make sure it supports that form factor. Um, yeah. I do want to say. <clears throat> I, I said it just a second ago, but you know, Joel said they're expensive. There are some things on Amazon that are selling these things for like two and a half grand. That is not what we're asking you to buy. <laughs> Do not <Yeah>. buy that. <laughs> um, yeah. There, there, there are cheaper options. I think it was like, yeah, a hundred dollars or sub a hundred dollars. So we'll link some of those down in the description. Um, uh, you know, you can find them on some of them. You can find on Amazon. Some of them you can find on some of the other websites. Um, so definitely don't go and spend like two and a half grand for one of these things because it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. For the T56, that's really good um, for like... Yeah, tell uh, me about that. Yeah, so that's good for like NAND flashes and stuff. It has different use cases. Generally, when I use that... Um, what is a NAND I'm using flash? It for, uh, well, a NAND is just like a basic like part of a chip. It's mm -hmm. just like a, a, an electronic like structure, but mm -hmm. um, a NAND flash, it's just a different type of flash. Okay, like, gotcha. As opposed to an, EM, an EMMC or a NAND flash, they're, they're different types of flashes, NOR sure. flashes. Um, but uh, you can buy these large sets of adapters. So I have a huge box that's full of just like uh, every type of TSOP, like TSOP 48, TSOP 56, like every single, you know, TSOP or SOP adapter that you can think of. And then on the bottom, it has these little pins that they're just, you know, pin headers. And essentially you clamp it in this T56 mm. and then you plug it into your computer and you can read it. Um, nice. 
and it's just you know it's a different way of mounting it um generally the all socket one i'm using for bga stuff i suppose you probably could do bga stuff this way with the t56 yeah it says uh, it says um if you here i'll send it to you right now on discord if you if you look at the third item down um it's it says supports bga 45 63 64 153 162 169 221 so i, I think you know it, it definitely has a wide range of bga that it's compatible with yeah yeah so i think the main thing is you just have to get the right adapters for it mm, mm. um i'm not i'm honestly not sure like how this thing works <laughs> like every time i've ever used it i just plug it in and uh it 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 either has the chip in the software or it doesn't and so uh, cool. it just like yeah i don't know it's uh it's kind of weird but it's pretty it's pretty useful yeah so this could be a good one a good one um to check out and add to your to your arsenal as well i think probably altogether i spent maybe five or six hundred dollars on sort of like a beginner's setup for all of this stuff um when i was first starting out um so you know definitely it's not cheap to get into it but also now i've got the tools that i'll use in the future as well um so that's that's pretty helpful yeah, yeah. I, hardware hacking is one of those things where you could easily spend a couple thousand dollars on on tools and oh. still not have the right thing that you need. Um, so I would just say do a lot of research before you buy stuff, especially specifically for your use case. So like what specific chip do you want to use this tool for? Is it going to work for that chip? Um, and don't be surprised if it doesn't work for other chips. Um, just, that's kind of just the way it is. Uh, if you can find some of those more generic tools, um, sometimes they're more expensive and they'll require some more like effort on your side in terms of like programming or like maybe you'll have to write something custom to interface with it. But those tools will let you interface with almost anything. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I definitely value that flexibility a little bit because it's it's nothing. There's nothing worse than like you sit down on a weekend and you're ready to go and you're like, all right, I'm just gonna hack this, and you get like an hour in and you're like, ah, I don't actually have the thing that I need. <laughs> yes, that's a pain. Um, all right, so you cleaned it, you put it in your reader. Um, like Joel mentioned in the beginning, there's a little um, dot at the corner of a lot of the EMC chips that uh, show you where the number one pin is, and you'll want to align that with the arrow on your um, all socket EMMC reader if you're using that and uh, sort of clamp it down, slide it right into a, uh, a SD uh, card slot either on your computer. Ideally, it, your computer has a uh, EMMC reader built in at a sort of internal uh, chip level rather than using like a USB thing. But the USB things will work as well unless you're trying to access some specific features that only a EMMC reader can access rather than an SD card reader because they are sort of cross compatible, but EMMC has some features that SD can't handle, I think. Right. Yeah. So like the RPMB stuff that we talked about, like yeah. that is one of those specific things where you need an MMC controller that is in like on your device in order to interface with something like that. They sell PCIe ones that are, that are like proper MMC controllers, but most of the time you're going to find it needs to be like an onboard S full size SD reader on your computer on a, like a laptop or something and even then a lot of the times it won't um if you use like a usb reader usb like sd readers they are basically just storage interfaces for mmc so they have an mmc controller on the you know in the usb adapter or whatever 
But when you plug that in, all it's doing is exposing those storage interfaces. So it's going to be all the storage partitions, but you're not going to have access to the raw MMC, like RPMB and any of those other like special MMC type things, unless you have an onboard MMC controller. So if all you need to do is read data partitions, totally fine. If you need to Which read RPMB normally, yes, normally speak like 99% of cases, you'll probably be fine. But if you want to try and get at RPMB or any, any of that kind of stuff, you're going to need an onboard MMC controller. Yeah. Yeah. So now you've you've got it hooked up. You're seeing the partitions pop in. What um, what we did last time is we just used the DD command in Linux to just pull an, a raw you know device level image of that device into an image um, file, and then we ended up using uh, was it seven seven zip seven zip yeah seven yeah. zip to go ahead and. Um, break that out into the individual partitions, and then you know you'll see various files created. And if you run file on them, you'll see like uh, you know there's a there's an ext four ext four yeah yeah or like a fat partition or whatever you know there's going to be a bunch of different partitions because that's always what it, it, they have in a bunch of these IoT devices. But um, you know identifying all of those various uh, partitions is really fun, and and this kind of pivots into the, the last section that I wanted to cover, which is like. Um, Joel, what kind of like preventions have you seen from this? Because the only one that kind of comes to my head was like, man, we would have been in, in trouble if they, um, stuck all of the source code or like the file system for that device inside of that Lux, um, encrypted partition that we, that we saw for some of the more sensitive data. And then, um, and then you, you know, stored the key for that Lux encrypted partition in, in a secure enclave in, at like a hardware level at the CPU or something like that. Um, that would have been a royal pain in the butt to get access to. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that option. I, I imagine that would sort of delay startup quite a bit because every time you wanted to use the device, you'd have to um, decrypt everything on the partition and then also copy that into an actual functioning partition. Um, so that, that might affect the boot speed a little bit, but what, what other kind of hardware level preventions have you seen that might, you know, foil a hacker? Yeah. So like you mentioned, like that kind of stuff, that's going to be like 99% of the time is going to stop like a lot of what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to find some other attack scenario. You're, if you want like a shell or something like mm -hmm. that to, to figure out like what it's doing, you're going to need to like glitch it or maybe you'll have to read the MMC while it's running or something like right. that. Right. Like this is one of those cases where that might actually be the right scenario um but yeah uh, an encrypted partition would stop like pretty much all, all the stuff that we were we were doing there um another thing that you see commonly and this isn't for storage so much as it is for like debugging stuff but there's typically there'll be like a fuse either within a chip or on the board um and it's typically called like a jtag fuse or a uart or a debug fuse or something and they'll they'll basically pop the fuse by like putting enough power to it and then it can never be reverted. So it'll, it has a physical break in the c communication between like your test pins and the JTAG interface on the chip. And you can't get around that unless you like, I don't know, do, do some like really crazy, like, yeah, I was, I was gonna uh, say pulling the chip apart. Like I, I don't know. You're gonna have like, to like <laughs> cut into the chip and like get access, which to I've it. seen. By the that's way, crazy. Yeah, that would that would yes. be gnarly. That's interesting though. That that that's a counter measure that that people might take. You know, just kind of putting a fuse in there and blowing it. You know, severs the connection for that sort of thing. That's a good idea. Yeah, I've seen. Um, there's a couple really interesting Twitter threads out there. I'm trying to remember who created them, but. Um, 
uh, every once in a while you'll see like some crazy hardware hacker just like put a video of what they what they're working on like on twitter and this one time there's this guy he was using a razor blade uh to scratch away the surface of a chip while it was on the board to expose the context underneath oh and then he gosh. took like you know probably i don't know speaker speaker wire i, I don't even know like uh you know co like uh maybe like a, a coil wire or something like really really fine wire like wire wire gauge wire and and then like uh i think he soldered it down so it wouldn't move and then he soldered the, the like tip of it to to, to like the contact what on the baller, chip man. and it, dude it was so crazy i gotta i'll find it we'll put it in the show notes yeah no definitely find that i want to see that and i know i watched a um a talk at defcon by leonard i think is uh is the guy that did it uh hardware hacking guy um, you know, just glitching. Uh, I think it was some SpaceX or stuff or some whatever their their Wi-Fi thing is that's everywhere. Um, just absolutely amazing. So there's so much to learn about in this space, which really excites me as a as a more veteran hacker in the in the web and and mobile space a little bit now. Um, you know, having another realm to dive deep into is really is really cool. So I'm excited to continue learning about that sort of thing and be able to do some some glitching and and some uh, some of the stuff that I haven't ta uh, tackled next time around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's this space is like, I feel like I've just barely scratched the surface in terms of knowledge and understanding and, and what's possible and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I'm just, just like I'm doing like, you know, baby's first hardware hacking right now. So right, like right. I, there's so much, so much I, I don't know. And there's so much I haven't explored that that seems so cool. Well, it's very different too, you know, and if you talk to some of these lower level guys, they, they don't have any, uh, you know, experience doing web stuff. And so it's just different realms and different sections of places where people are, are focusing. And so it's cool to get some sort of cross experience. It makes you really feel like a more well-rounded or developed hacker, I think. Um, I did want to add a disclosure at the end here. Um, this does not constitute a vulnerability. So, um, being able to pull the operating system off of a chip, I personally don't believe uh, constitutes a vulnerability. Um, I've seen some hackers report that. I'm not sure whether they got paid or not, um, but you know, there's not a really great countermeasure to it. And, um, and so it's just kind of a part of hardware hacking and more like finding JavaScript files in, in, um, in web stuff or more like uh, decompiling an APK and grabbing at the, the Java source code, you know, uh, in mobile. Um, so definitely, definitely don't go and like, once you get your chip and you pull the data off of it, don't go report it like critical, you know, source code disclosure, because uh, I believe most of the time that is uh, something that is not going to get accepted by the program. So there's your disclaimer. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I, and I, I agree. I've actually, I've seen people report this exact thing as, mm. as a bug. And uh, it's personally, it's not something that I would report uh, uh, either, but mm. I do see that there is a security risk to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, I would probably just like, it's a really hard attack scenario to like justify as like, you know, a to say like, oh, it's a hierarchy or something. Uh, that's a really hard thing to justify depending on what it is depending on what it is. There are certainly hardware devices like cell phones that are in like so many people's hands and pockets that that might be a justifiable attack scenario. But I think just in and of itself, having a decrypted partition, maybe not enough. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. All right, man. Yeah. Uh, that's all I had on the notes for this episode. Uh, you got anything else or are we going to wrap it up here? 
nope that's it i did find those links so we'll, we'll put them in the show notes be sure to check out the those links one is from uh g torix and one is from hacking things uh, both on twitter i'm gonna go i'm gonna go look those up right now i will say as we're heading out um so many of you uh went over to the website after last episode criticalthinkingpodcast.io and dropped your email in the newsletter super appreciate that i would love if you continue to do that um, and also, please remember Naham Khan, uh, it, that, that is, let me pull up the dates really quickly. I want to say it's June 15th to 17th. Um, yeah, June, yes, it is. June 15th to 17th. The Saturday is when I'll be speaking at the 1220 slot. You won't want to miss out on that. Lots of great, uh, talented bug bounty hunters there dropping some amazing presentations. So we'll, yes. uh, we'll see you there. Yes. So start, remember it starts one week from the drop of this episode. Yep. So Yep. Be sure to tune in if you want to hear a little bit more Justin and uh, some other awesome John Hammond's going to be there. So yeah, super, yeah. super, super awesome security conference. Go check it out. For sure. All right. Catch y'all next week. Peace. All righty. Peace.